This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, the first Bible reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and begins at verse 22 and can be found on page 847 in the Bibles in your pews. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your, the span of your life? If then you're not able to do a small thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Our second reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, commencing at the 19th verse, can be found on page 931. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. The Jews I believe, as to the Jews I believe as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. 
So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself shall not be disqualified. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, We come to the last in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, the theme today is self-control. So let's ask for God's help as we seek to understand how to be more like him. Our Lord God, we, uh, we lean into you in all your kindness and mercy to us, and we ask for you to fill us by your Spirit that we might know you more deeply so that we might be more like you. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I want to start this morning by talking about marshmallows. Unfortunately, I didn't bring any, but uh, you may have heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. It was conducted in 1970 by a psychologist named Walter Mischel, and it's actually been repeated. You can actually see YouTube versions of this uh, experiment. Now, in the study, a four-year-old was given a choice between eating one marshmallow now or two marshmallows if they could wait 15 minutes. But the kicker was that in that 15 minutes, the adult, the tester, leaves the room with the child then alone with the marshmallows. About a third of the children could wait. But some kids, of course, just took the marshmallow immediately. And the test was to see how long it was before they gave in. Well, what does this prove, other than it's, uh, that adults uh, have great delight in being cruel to children? Michel went on to show that kids who are able to wait longer tended to have better life outcomes in terms of health, wealth, and education. He wrote about the experiment in a book with a revealing title, The Marshmallow Test, Why Self-Control is the engine of success. Some kids, he said, were successful because they had an innate capacity for self-control, and so things went well for them. Others didn't, and so their lack of self-control meant that they became delinquents and suffered much. But where does this superior ability for self-control come from? We, you and I, like to believe, as people who are on the whole pretty self-controlled, we like to believe that people with greater self-control are in some way morally better than others. If people are overweight or poor, why is it? If people are unemployed or drug addicted, why? It's because it's their fault, we say. We assume it's because they're lazy or gluttonous or unable to control themselves, as we are. Conversely, if we and when we succeed, it's because of our hard work and dedication, our better self-discipline. And it doesn't take us very much, uh, very much to actually then think of ourselves as better people, morally better people. And yet things are, of course, more complex than that. It's easier to be thinner and healthier, for example, if you live in a wealthier harbourside suburb where everyone jogs and goes to the gym, where you even have personal trainers in your congregation. If you live in the west of Sydney, you are more likely statistically to to die of heart disease or lung cancer. 
What this says is that what we think of as self-control, for which we give ourselves, oh, a great pat on the back, is actually more like social control. We think of ourselves as possessing a noble self-mastery, when in fact it's just that we're fortunate enough to be living in a community that shapes our behaviour in positive ways. But actually, if we think about our behaviour, it's not all positive, is it? We may be relatively thin, but that might be a sign of our uncontrollable anxiety, not our self-mastery. It may be a sign of our slavery to image. We in the East drink more heavily than they do in the West. We are addicted to workahol, our drug of choice, or to affairs, or to porn, or to our uncontrollable desire to express our rage and our feeling of superiority when we see others fail, might also mask the reality that for all of us, to be human is to engage in that strange wrestle for control with the self, which not many of us truly can say we are winning. We are not self-reliant robots, it turns out, but creatures with needs. We have bodies with appetites that are powerful drivers, food, drink, sleep, Sex, health, safety. We have hearts that long to know and be known. We can't bear isolation from others for too long. It's a remarkable thing that the thing that outdid porn on the internet was social media because our desire for connection or what we think is connection with others is so deep that we just cannot but connect. We have souls that have a deep need for significance and purpose. In other words, somewhere in your life, you are eating the first marshmallow. So how can we control ourselves? Now, one strategy offered by everyone from self-help gurus to religious teachers to philosophers is just be more disciplined. Get a grip of yourself. Recently, I read uh, Jordan Peterson's book, uh, 12 Rules for Life. It's a great book. I actually quite enjoyed it. But one of his rules for life is tidy your room. In other words, organise your life. Stop living in your mess and tidy up. What he's really saying is get self-control by being self-controlled. Try harder and you'll be self-controlled. Just say no. You can really see the contradiction in this strategy. It's circular, isn't it? Be more self-controlled by being more self-controlled. And so you'll find that mostly it doesn't really work. It has no capacity to change things. In fact, the New Testament tells this, tells us this. Its diagnosis of the human condition is deeper, I'm afraid, and with all respect to Jordan Peterson's. It says, Christianity is not a moral message which says try harder to be good. It's not a set of behaviours or values that you have to meet or you aren't a Christian. In fact, whenever I hear that phrase, Christian values, I want to reach for my gun. There's nothing Christian about it. In fact, Paul says to the Colossians, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, 
Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have, no, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. Oh, they look clever. They look profound, don't they? We love someone telling us what to do. Take this new diet and you'll become more spiritual. Keep this routine and your life will be more pure, more organized. Things will go better for you. An appearance of wisdom there, the self, with their self-imposed worship, says Paul, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But, he says, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't work. They work maybe for a time, but they do not work to change us. We, we so much believe this great myth. It's the myth peddled to us, especially in reality television. It's the makeover show myth, right? Make over the outside and you'll change the inside. It doesn't work. The New Testament knew this. And that's why the Christian gospel is not about primarily about following rules. It doesn't work if that's the case. Just keep the rules and we'll add some extra rules just for sure. has no power to change human behavior. If that's what it is, then we're stuffed. We're completely in the hole. And this strategy, just try harder, has no power to make us right with God. Paul admits this in one of the great passages of his, of his corpus, Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, he says this, I do not understand what I do. He's pretty honest, isn't he? <laughs> doesn't understand himself. And he says this, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Can you not recognize this in yourself? What I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. This is one of the most searing diagnoses of the human condition ever penned. And I, I, I recognize myself in it. I hope you do too. We tell each other and we tell ourselves that we need to be true to ourselves. That the best you can do is know inside yourself what is right and wrong and you should keep to that. That's what we tell children. You'll know inside what's right and wrong. Be authentic to yourself and everything will be fine. And yet we cannot, the, the truth is we cannot keep to our own measures, even our own measures. The good we would, we do not do. And we do the thing we would not do. So what are we to do? And especially when we recall that Paul has listed self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit, that Christians are supposed to be those who have self-control, when Paul is himself saying that self-control is humanly impossible. Well, as with all the fruits of the Spirit, we've learnt them by seeing how God displays them first of all. So we turn to the character of God first of all. But with self-control, this is just a little bit trickier. When we look at God as a model of self-control, because even though he is utterly free in all things, he never breaks his promises. He never does something which is not true to himself. He's always self-consistent. Whenever he wills the good, it is that good that he does. 
He never wills something that he does not do. But he does not live as you and I do in the flesh. Which is why we need to turn to Jesus to see what self-control is. And Jesus shows us two things about self-control. The first, he shows us when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. You remember the story, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat. So he's physically weak at that point. And then he meets Satan, who tempts him, tempts him to power, tempts him to deny God's authority. And Jesus, time and time again, resists him. Now, I used to think this story was really uh, about Jesus as a sort of Clark Kent figure, really Superman. He has an S on his chest, he's super powerful, and it's through his, his sort of strength of will, his fortitude, that he overcomes Satan. But in each of these, the three temptations that Satan puts in front of Jesus, Jesus answers him not by just outmuscling him, but by a verse in the Bible, which means Jesus does not overcome Satan by being stronger than Satan. Jesus leans in, in a moment of real physical weakness, and depends on his Father. Man will not, eat, uh, will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus says to Satan, which is exactly what Jesus is himself doing, leaning in and depending on his Father. It's not because he has more willpower that he wins. It's because he is more deeply trusting in God. And that's true of him when we see him go to the cross. The cross is not an extraordinary display of self-control and willpower and physical endurance. We aren't in awe of him in the way we are in awe of a star athlete or virtuoso. What we see in Jesus is his surrender to the will of the Father. He says, not my will, but your will. It's his faithful obedience to God. His self-control, the self-control that he has, comes from giving control to God. And that leads me to the second thing that Jesus Jesus shows us about self-control. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is part of a, a banquet of fruit. They belong together. And the first fruit of the Spirit, can anyone remember what the first fruit is? It's love. That's right. Self-control is connected to love. And Jesus, for Jesus, his great self-control was for the sake of others. He was motivated by the love of God and for his people. His mastery of himself was an act of service. He did not call down armies of angels to destroy his enemies, but for the sake of those he came to save, freely submitted himself to torture and humiliation. What should fill us with awe is not his physical strength or his determination or his endurance of pain, but his love. This is what Paul is saying in the lesson we had from 1 Corinthians 9 too. He's saying... I want others to know Christ and be saved. And so I discipline myself. I control myself in order that others may know Christ for the sake of, for the good of others. Love drives me to self-control. We should notice how different this idea of self-control, how unique this idea of self-control is. Because in the ancient world and in Buddhist thinking and in much modern self-help thinking, 
The secret to self-control is not love, but actually withdrawing from desire, holding back from desire. In Buddhism, it's desire that gets us into trouble in the first place, right? That's what causes suffering. Just as in ancient Stoicism, this was the case. We'll be controlled, they say, those great teachers, if we don't love too much, because it's love that gets us into trouble. This is completely at odds with how the Bible thinks. We don't control our desires by having no desire. That's impossible anyway. You and I are made for it. We're made for love. That sounds like a cheesy song, doesn't it? You and I are made for love. But it's true. Love is our very purpose. So what we need to do is not refrain from love, but love in the right way. Love the right thing. Type of self-control could be used in doing all sorts of evil things. The Nazis were impressively self-controlled after all. But the self-control of Jesus Christ is self-control in the service of love. But Jesus doesn't just teach us what self-control is. Leaning into God, submitting to God, and self-control in the service of directed for and in the use of love. He gives us self-control through his Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, you and I are made into new people. If you're in Jesus, if you're with him, you're no longer in the grip of sin. You have the living Spirit of God in you. Previous to that, we were in the grip of sin as, a, as the crocodile has its prey in a death roll, dragging it under the water. No matter how hard we tried, we could not be free but now, because of Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, we are free from sin. Our bodies, hearts and souls have been renewed so that we don't have to live under the mastery of sin. Instead, the spirit living in you empowers you to have Christ-like self-control, submitting to God for the good of others. Now, I say some things, it's my job to say some things that people find difficult to believe. But this is one of the things people find hardest to believe. Because sin is still there, isn't it? The message that I'm teaching this morning is exactly what Paul says in Philippians. He says there, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You are empowered with a new strength. One of Satan's greatest lies is that you can't say no to sin because by the power of the Spirit, you can. But how does this work practically? How can I find more self-control in my life? How can I cultivate self-control? Well, I've got three things. Firstly, Greater self-control doesn't come from being more rational or better educated or from trying harder. It comes from surrendering to God, the God who gives us back to ourselves. That's what Jesus shows us. If you lean into God, if you give your will over to him, you will find in him true freedom. 
There's this great old prayer from the prayer book which says, it prays to God whose service is perfect freedom, which you think is a contradiction. But in the kind of God we come to meet here week by week, it is no contradiction at all. Since when we give ourselves to him, he gives to us perfect freedom. He gives us all we need. We heard that from the teaching of Jesus from Luke's gospel. He gives us security and significance. Surrendering then more deeply to God means pursuing a life in relationship with him, directed by him, speaking to him, praying to him. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? The path to self-control begins not by saying, I'm going to try harder, but by saying, I can't, and by giving control to God, by surrendering to him. And if this sounds a little bit to you like the 12-step program, it does, doesn't it? It's because they stole it from the Bible and good on them for doing it. So greater self-control doesn't come from being more rational or trying harder. It comes from surrendering to God. That's the first thing. Secondly, we can be very practical about this, though. Identify areas in your life in which you lack self-control and take action against them. Perhaps anger is an issue for you. Rage overcomes you. You see the red mist. Or perhaps there's a bitterness that's eating away at you and you can't put it aside, you can't control it. Or perhaps it's gossip. You know that you just, you know, you can't be trusted with a secret because you have the urge, the uncontrollable urge to spill the beans. Or perhaps it is that you are mean, persistently mean in such a way as you just can't change or you have a problem with some other destructive habit that's hurting you and others. You're a habitual liar and again can't seem to shake that problem. Or perhaps there's even more serious problem that you're trying to shake. Where is the point in your life where you say I can't help it and it's hurting others? Stop giving up hope here. And take practical steps in the power of God, knowing that you are filled with God's Holy Spirit to change. Absolutely key is the first step, submitting to God. Just telling yourself to stop it won't work unless you start by leaning more deeply into God and realizing that love of him is far better than the habit or the behavior that you're doing. And that he gives you self-control by the power of the Spirit. But after that, he's just the boring stuff of getting up each day and doing what needs to be done day by day for the sake of others. So take steps. That's the second step. Lean into God, the first step. Take steps, the second step. And thirdly, God has given us each other in the church as a laboratory for the soul or better, a greenhouse for the soul in order to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit because as this greenhouse, we grow much, much faster. Together, we, we are supposed to form a community of transformed character. And this makes sense of who we are as creatures because you and I are socially influenced beings. We are connected. That's, how, that's what we're made for. That's how we operate We're meant to form a community of transformed character, a place of positive peer pressure 
friend of mine used to always point to the way geese fly in formation. And there's some scientific study showing that geese flying in formation can fly far further on the same energy than geese flying alone. Such is the church, although I'm not calling you all geese. We are a community for the transformation of character together. We're here to model to one another what true self-control looks like, not as a point of judging others, condemning each other, but in showing one another what the impact of grace on a life ought to look like. We together form a different way to be. And that's what we want St. Mark's to be, a place of authentic, real community where we help one another with gentleness and kindness and peace and patience and all the other fruit of the Spirit to be more self-controlled for the sake of one another, for the sake of those who are not yet here, for the sake of the glory of the name of Jesus Christ in the power of God's Holy Spirit. A friend of mine's actually done some research on this, uh, another minister, uh, did a long uh, study, a long project, and discovered that there's a great, a direct statistical connection, correlation between church involvement with being in a church community and personal spiritual growth. One follows the other. You can't tell which goes first, but they're deeply connected with one another. The more we invest in one another, in other words, the more we together will reap a harvest of those spiritual fruit, not only self-control, but love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, and kindness. And I don't know about you, but I want some of those. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources, and find more information about the community of St. Mark's.